This is Pretty Vacant, a two-part podcast series on artificial intelligence and the future of art, labor, and everything in between. From the Center for Artistic Inquiry and Reporting. Our host for the show is the artist Molly Crabapple. She's the author of Drawing Blood and, with Marwan Hisham, Brothers of the Gun. Her artwork can be found around the world and is also in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art. And now, here's Molly. In 2023, I teamed up with the Center to draft an open letter against AI illustrations in newsrooms. The letter talked about AI art generators and how they're trained on enormous data sets that contain millions upon millions of stolen copyrighted images. We talked about how they're harvested without their creator's knowledge, compensation, or consent. As we see it, billion-dollar corporations are pulling off the greatest art heist in human history, and they're saying we artists have to take it. Our letter got around 4,000 signatures and launched debates around the world. But this goes far beyond art. For the Pretty Vacant series, I'm going to talk with people who have cut through Silicon Valley hype to critically analyze how AI technologies are reshaping creativity, work, and life. Whether they're unearthing buried histories or marching on picket lines, these thinkers are showing us we don't have to accept big tech's narrative of inevitability. We can fight back. And here we go. First up is the writer Brian Merchant. He's a journalist, an author who's written for Wired, The Atlantic, Harper's, The Guardian, and more. And these days, he is a tech columnist for the LA Times. Brian also released a new book called Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech. In it, he tells the real story of England's Luddite uprising 200 years ago from the point of view of the workers who lived and fought in it. At a moment when the word Luddite is used to belittle critics of Silicon Valley, Brian's book is crucial reading. And every time someone talks down to me in an argument, I want to beat them over the head with it. Uh, Brian, first off, I want to start by asking, who were the Luddites? Well, first of all, great to be here. And that was the nicest thing I think anyone's ever said about the book so far. So yes, I look forward to uh, having it assist you in all kinds of uh, anti-Luddite book beatings. But yeah, the Luddites were cloth workers at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution who, uh, I guess to put it simply, saw the ways that technology was being used and deployed against them by factory owners, entrepreneurs, and prospective factory owners, and protested first very peacefully and uh, through the quote-unquote correct channels, going to parliament and asking for reforms, and then publicly, and they were rebuffed. So when times got bad enough and the entrepreneurs put the gas on the automated machinery in 1811, the Luddites adopted the name that they're now famous for and rose up uh, in a campaign to push back against the factory owners and bosses that were using this technology uh, for the very specific purpose of exploiting them, lowering their wages, and instituting the factory system, which was atrocious already. So these were skilled workers who understood the new technology perfectly well. They might even have been willing to adopt it in a certain way. They just didn't want it to be used to impoverish them while it was making their bosses really, really rich. Uh, but you write in the book, quote, Luddite has been shoehorned into history as shorthand for someone who blindly opposes technology and importantly, is doomed and at least a little dumb. How did this happen? How did the word Luddite become an insult? Well, very intentionally. Um, it was basically a product of the elite classes of the day intentionally uh, smearing these working people in an attempt to sort of justify what they were doing, which was using state power to crush them. That while on one hand, the state was mobilizing the military, they sent thousands of troops to occupy the industrial districts where the Luddites were, were, were waging their campaign. Uh, it was the largest uh, domestic occupation in Britain's history. And it, it did end up eventually in the destruction of the Luddites, but that wasn't enough 
just to put them down. So the prince regent who was ruling England at the time writes these proclamations. The industrialists themselves are using this language and the prosecutors in the trials of some of the Luddites are using this language that's already sort of starting to take shape in those days into what we now know as sort of this common coinage of Luddism. That is somebody who's backwards looking, who doesn't get it, who hates technology, who hates progress. And it's really just kind of a construct, right? It's a, it's a boogeyman that the state finds useful and that entrepreneurs and tech titans, as I call them in the book of the time, find useful to sort of silence critics. And that tradition has persisted uh, for 200 years because, again, the leaders of the tech industry, leaders of industry and, and the state uh, have found it convenient to do so. It's, it's useful to have a, have a boogeyman to, to silence critics. No one wants to be a, a loser or backwards looking. Uh, so you can trot out this term. Oh, you don't like uh, the way that technology might be depressing your wages or you're forced to work for an app or, or, or you're being surveilled at work. Well, well, you're a Luddite, you know? So it's really, it's an easy way to, to, to wave away those criticisms and complaints and beginnings of resistance, really. So you're telling me that the Luddites didn't just lose because they were a bunch of dummy losers and that the mechanical frames were just so good. You're telling me that they lost because the bosses brought in the state to hang them, right? Right. Yeah. No, it wasn't just the, it, this idea also of sort of the modern conception of the Luddite is that like, oh, well, they, they were so they were backwards looking. They were clinging to something that was just kind of doomed to like blow away in the wind, you know, these ancient traditions that they liked so dearly, which was not true at all. As you said up front, they were technologists. They knew the technology better than anybody. They just wanted it to be used in a way that was much more equitable and that they had more autonomy over. Uh, but absolutely, they were besieged, essentially, by the state. They faced a, an, an organized military campaign. And it's really one of these first instances where you see this prolonged sort of union of the state and industry sort of uniting to really put down a workers' movement, which is basically what this was. And it's a, one of those points in history that you can point to where you, the state made a choice and there were hundreds of thousands of cloth workers and, and potential Luddites all sort of crying out for just the basic sort of means of subsistence and support and dignity. They were asking for minimum wages. They were asking, and they just completely got ignored in favor of the state adopting this tactic of allying with the military to crush the Luddites outright. Um, and it wouldn't be the last time that that happened, of course. Your book is very much in the tradition of usable history of something that isn't just a chronicle of events in the past that stay safely in the past, but rather draws explicit parallels to the present. You talk about the labor struggles of the taxi workers, something that I covered myself. You talk about Amazon warehouse workers who are being surveilled. You even give a shout out to my people, the artists who are getting all of their work gobbled up and excreted by these art generators. I want to ask you, why do you think that both like the real Luddite uprising, but also the mythology about the Luddites that was pushed by the elite, why do you think both of these things are so important for us to read now? And what can they tell us about what big tech is up to today? Yeah, I mean, it was really pretty surprising to me as I was going through the research phase, just in, in some cases, it just kind of seemed like one-to-one -one what the uh, the interest of the tech industry, as we could call sort of this emerging factory system and the entrepreneurs pushing it uh, of the time and how they sort of went about achieving their goals and how sort of tech companies are doing that today. So it, for instance, you know, there were a bunch of regulations and norms and standards and traditions on the books that really governed the cloth trade. And once entrepreneurs realized that you could use machinery to, to, to divide labor and to start building sort of factories, large and small, they also needed an excuse to sort of chew over the, you know, the legal ramifications or those standards that, that people had a large 
large interest in, in upholding that governed these, these tight-knit communities. And they pointed to the technology, you know, they would say, oh, you know, like, this is different. This is the, all those, those rules and standards that say, oh, an apprentice should work uh, this number of years before they join the trade or that cloth count should be this high in order to get this price. Well, none of that matters anymore because this is, a, this is, tech, this is technology we're talking about here. This is, uh, you know, this is, this is the factory. All, the, all those old rules should be thrown out. And you just look at the way Uber and Lyft sort of mounted their campaign to just kind of roll into a city, say, okay, we're here now. We're going to do it this way. Um, and oh, by the way, we don't have to play by the rules that govern uh, the taxi industry. Uh, we, you know, we're a technology company. We're a, we're a platform, you know, it, none of the bets are, obviously they're a taxi company. They are providing a taxi service and it was the same back then. They're still producing cloth. They just use technology as sort of an excuse to disempower workers, to extract higher wages, to, to tear up the rule book. And we've seen that repeated time and again, but I think to the larger point, the reason that so little has changed and that I was just kind of blown away time and again in this research pro process by how similar things are today is that we just still have this system of technological development that is led by a handful of people who have access to capital and to power and, to, and, and, and resources, and they get to determine the shape of technology. They get to determine how it's developed, built, and handed down. You know, back then it was the, the biggest sort of factory owners who could curry favor with the magistrates or the lords of their land and then, you know, call in those troops when it was time to face a, face down a disturbance. You know, today it's whoever can get the ear of a, a venture capitalist and get hundreds of hundreds of millions of dollars to start a new a new platform that they then impose on everybody else. And you know, regular people, for the most part, are forced to, you know, play defense. We deal with the ramifications of that. And this mode of technological development has not meaningfully changed. It's, it's profoundly anti-democratic. And I think it encompasses a lot of the issues that we're seeing today, like with open AI coming along and just rolling out Dolly and well, did they take any time at all to, you know, meet with uh, the people whose jobs that it might displace and do any kind of fact finding or get or, or seek any kind of democratic input in the way that this thing is just rolled out? Absolutely not. They just feel that it's their right to unleash this product. Not only that, but then to try to sell it to bosses at the enterprise level all over the economy. I imagine we'll talk about that more now, but same deal back then. And, and until something something within that configuration is changed, then I, we're just going to keep seeing these problems arise time and again. One of the things that the book does a really good job of is talking about the ideological underpinnings of all of this and about how ideology provides a justification. Early on, there's this scene where an entrepreneur is thinking about bringing mechanical looms into his factory and he goes to his priest and the priest is like, dude, what are you doing? You're just going to impoverish people and make their families starve for greed because the priest is coming from, you know, an ideology that for better or worse is Christian, right? It has something that it values more than mere profit. But you talk a lot about how the rise of people like Adam Smith and ideas about laissez-faire capitalism were used to justify everything from chattel slavery to literally feeding children into machines to keep them going. Can you talk about the ideological underpinnings of the moment that we're at with AI? Yeah. Yeah, that was another surprising thing to me, too. And it was kind of, you know, important to document, I think, the way that that uh, that ideology got got picked up and then used to justify a lot of this stuff, as you said. You know, the workers they 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 knew Adam Smith. They called him Doctor A Smith. They 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 hated him. Like they knew they knew what what his ideology was being put in service of, and that was to justify the factory, to justify child labor, to justify you know decreasing wages when uh, you could see obviously that by by pushing down wages or moving it moving more automation into your factory that you were just making somebody starve down the street it was much more obvious back then that when when you employ automation you could see 
you know, you could see the people you were putting out of work and you had to face them in town. And a lot of people that you, like you, like you mentioned, would rather just not have any part of it. And they sort of gave up on the business, on the business rather than um, put their, put their neighbors out of work. Today, it's, uh, you know, 200 years later, that is one thing that has changed. It's that, that, that sort of predilection that, technology equals progress, that, you know, profiting is virtuous, that, you know, doing, maximizing your profit is, is, you know, is, is the way to, uh, you know, be, become successful and become an icon and become, you know, wealthy. It's an assumption. It's a given now. It was being challenged. It was then, it was in formation then. Today, we're, I think, at the point where we're seeing the result of a couple decades of that kind of normalization and the anger at it, right? Like it has, it has curdled, you know, there was a decade or so back there where people barely even talked about capitalism. And now, you know, people understand the ways that uh, especially technologized capitalism and the, and the sort of the, the regimes that we're facing down now stand to impact their, their lives in very negative ways. So it is sort of a new front I see being opened up in the ways that, and I think one way it's manifesting is in all this resistance to new technological products like generative AI or the gig work apps and Amazon, which has really intense worker um, surveillance regimes and actually has people trying to work like robots, even though they're not. So we're seeing sort of a lot of these things taken to their logical conclusions. And a lot of people are justifiably and rightfully so kind of looking around and saying, what what is going on? What is all of this for? And I, we may be seeing the beginnings of a of a breaking point in you know, in, a, in a positive sense. Back in May 2023, you published a piece for the LA Times called "Your Boss Wants AI to Replace You: The Writer's Strike Shows How to Fight Back." In it, you talked about how these AI corporations in Silicon Valley are creating services that will strip artists, actors, writers of jobs, that will transform the economy, that will replace millions of jobs. And then you said, and I'm quoting, the next chapter is about humans fighting back. If the robots are rising, then a rebellion is taking shape to stop them. Can you tell me more about what this rebellion looks like? Yeah, we've seen for what for what in our times is a, a novel mode of resistance. And that's just sort of refusal of, of a technology saying no and realizing that there is power in saying no to an exploitative technology, in this case, generative AI. And when the you know writer's strike began, you know, it wasn't necessarily one of their key top line demands. It wasn't that, you know, they, they, in fact, you talk to them and they say, oh, you know, we just kind of put that in there because we thought it was going to be a gimme. And we put it in the contract that, yeah, the studios can't use AI to, to write our scripts. But then they pushed back and almost and tried to throw it out entirely. And they realized, oh, this is what they want to do if they can. And saying no to that, say, drawing a red line is, is, is a tactic that I think has become surprisingly powerful. And it's been embraced in other areas too. Um, your rejection, Molly, of, of AI in sort of the newsroom, and you're calling on newsrooms to uh, ban the use of generative AI for for art is another instance. It was another flashpoint where, I mean, I, as we've talked about before, in fact, like artists and, and, and illustrators and freelancers oftentimes are not a well-organized bunch. It's an atomized, uh, you know, job where you have a lot of autonomy, but also you're not connected in a union the same way as, say, the SAG or WGA is. So something like this, I've seen it bringing a lot of artists together, at least from where I'm sitting, in 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 solidarity against this this mode of exploitation, which is a way that corporations and clients are trying to wipe away jobs and depress wages. Um, in other kind of unrelated tactics, uh, uh, sectors rather, I've seen uh, leadism emerge as sort of a protest tactic in like the, the safe street rebel group in San Francisco that's coning uh, autonomous vehicles by, you know, putting a traffic cone on, on its hood, which confuses the car and then sort of shuts it down. And it's not, you know, it's not causing any long term damage to the car, but it is a potent and uh, sort of 
you know, resonant form of protest that's saying, no, like until these things are, you know, accepted by society, until they pass tests they have not yet passed, don't ram them down our throats. Uh, and it's a, it is another sort of refusal. And that's that's just AI and, and, and autonomous cars. We're seeing a lot of movement, you know, in previous years. And I document in the book and the Amazon labor movement. Uh, and, and Chris Smalls has has talked a lot about uh, the automation uh, that Amazon is carrying out as something that needs to be resisted. Gig work, it's a, a really tough uh, sector to organize, but there's been in, immense inroads in solidarity. So there's all of these growing rebellions against exploitative uses of tech, against tech companies in a way that, you know, frankly, we just have not, we have not seen. And it's both inspiring and, and produces a lot of hope. One of the reasons I think that there's so much rebellion is because it's not just that these technologies or the uses of these technologies by capitalists take away jobs, because these technologies actually depend on the invisible work of so many people. It's that they de-skill jobs, they disempower them, and they just make them worse in every possible way. In your book, you talk about like the extreme degradation of working conditions that automation leads to. Literally, you have orphans that are being tricked into signing 18-year contracts for jobs that are going to leave them working 20 hours a day in a lightless inferno where their fingers are going to get torn off and where they're going to be beaten if they take a break for a second. You have an industry that is completely dependent on cotton that is being picked by enslaved Africans in America. And this extreme like hyper-exploitation and degradation is so interwoven with, with why the technology works, with why it's adopted. And I think that... Um, one of the things that I I keep thinking about with generative AI is how it degrades creative work. In my field, for instance, Dolly, uh, Midjourney, uh, Stable Diffusion, they still can't create things without a lot, a lot, a lot of help that aren't really creepy. They still can't get the right number of teeth. They still make like weird bunions and stuff. But what they can do is they can make it so that a company can put in an input, get out your like weird bunion-y horror show, and then give that to someone on Fiverr to pay them five bucks, right, to Photoshop out the bunions. It's the same thing that WGA is fighting. They don't think that the tech is going to spit out the Sopranos. That's ridiculous. What they do think is that ChatGPT is going to spit out some gook nonsense nonsense that the studio bosses are going to give to humans and have them make coherent for a much, much lower wage for probably no percentage of royalties and in much, much greater quantities. And, you know, this is just the creative fields. You, you also write in the book that uh, companies like Amazon and Tesla are using cutting edge technologies combined with old fashioned labor exploitation for maximally efficient results. What is it about like these technologies in the hands of capitalists that makes workers' lives so much worse? Yeah, I mean, part of it is that it's as just as you've just said, it's it's the idea as much of a new technology, as much of uh, of the technology itself that can be used uh, or or argued for in order to sort of to break down a norm, to break down. Uh, a structure uh, of, of worker power that you know, or or to break down a community, as happened in the in the Luddites day. It, it's more the ammunition that the quote the tech titan uh, can use to sort of justify a new labor regime. Um, as I mean, it you, you know it does. These machines also do. Uh, you know, they can they they do increase product. They do increase produce like they do. They do produce more more shit. Right. Like that's the one thing that they can do. And, you know, we saw the result. I call it I think of the book, like one of the great, you know, unintended consequences of technology was, you know, at least the line that the inventor of the cotton gin gave at the time was like, oh, well, this will actually be a force for uh, reducing the need uh for, for slavery, uh, because it's going to automate this task. You won't need as many people to do it. 
Well, and the cotton gin does, of course, is explodes the production of cotton, and then you need more people to pick it, and all of a sudden you have a whole new boom in in slavery all across the United States. Slavery was, in some ways, as an institution, kind of on the ropes at that point, was uh, being targeted effectively by abolitionists, and this like just reinstated its raison d'etre in the minds of the uh, of the of the plantation owners and just some of the worst people in the world who then yeah use it as an excuse to tap more to exploit more workers quite ruthlessly and it is kind of dark in that that in that this book touches on that but you can't shy away from it it does enable or give these people an excuse. It gives these entrepreneurs and these industrialists and plantation owners an excuse to double down on this extreme labor, labor exploitation. In the United States, it was slavery. In England, it was it was child labor and unskilled labor and migrant workers who were just kind of fed into the machine and chewed up. It, it, it really just sort of breaks down that wall. As I, as I mentioned earlier, I think, these communities had developed around a technology that they used to produce a good for decades and decades, generations, even sometimes like 200 years. And that had a bunch of norms and, 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 and standards and, and shared experience bound up in it. Technology, again, is, is giving a lot of these folks the excuse that they need to turn a profit at the expense of another person. It's really just that simple. And when you have access to a lot of capital and a lot of ability to explode that tendency, then you can see some really awful things happen. Um, and yeah, it's 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 really dispiriting to see all of the invisible labor going on behind behind sort of the AI stuff that we have today. I mean, you, the, I think a group that that is integral to, to, to making sure YouTube runs smoothly just went on strike today because they, they unionized, but Google refuses to come to the table to even discuss uh, a, a contract with them. They just won't do it. They say no. There's all kinds, of, even, even in AI, these fancy smooth, smooth looking technologies, at every point along the supply chain, there is a human involved, whether it's moderating the results so people don't get horrifying things spit out at them at, in Google's Bard or whatever, um, or whether it's, as you said, actually doing the work of fixing up the, you know, the product or the output of MidJourney or ChatGPT. Um, there's just so much human labor still required in it. And all those folks, in order to meet the expectations of cost savings trumpeted by the new technologies, are getting paid less than ever. So they're getting, all these wages are getting pushed down and down in service of this shiny technology that's not supposed to involve a human. And I know I've gone on for a second here, but the last thing I'll add is that I think it really does give us occasion to question what we really want machines to do. Like, what I mean, I think art is a great example because it's like, oh, wow, look at what the machine can do. Isn't that wild that it can spit out this kind of like nightmare vision or like it could get kind of close to something you might see as clip art or uh, or this is a weird sunset painting. Uh, but we have a choice to make as a society too. Do we want, do we just want that? Do we want weird machine drivel to sort of paper our walls and our presentations and our online articles and our art exhibits? Do we want to just be pressing buttons and see like weird generative output that involved no people? I don't think most people actually want that. And if we actually want the alternative, which is good art that has meaning, that enhances our lives and our understanding of the world, then we can use this moment. We're at, we're at a juncture where we can decide, we can collectively decide if we want to put safeguards or uh, protections or whatever it may be to ensure that we protect that very important part of, of, of our world. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I think if you ask most people, it's going to be pretty decisively one way. You'll have, you know, blue check weirdos who are saying use, a, use AI or you'll get left behind in favor of using mid-journey for everything. And then almost everybody else saying, let's keep artists. I think that we need them, right? I really love in the book how much love, for lack of a better word, 
you give workers, like just common workers, not just like artists like myself who have always, you know, occupied like a weird societal niche, but like cloth workers, right? Or taxis. Like you have this paragraph where you're talking about the New York black cab driver, Douglas Shifter. Quote, he had driven his passengers millions of miles, logging tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of hours on the job. He had traveled down more streets and highways than almost anyone on the planet had compiled a book's worth of writing and ideas. There, I mean, that's such a beautiful description of what it is to be a deeply skilled human doing this work that maybe isn't perceived as being fancy pants in the way that art is, but that requires so much knowledge and so much humanity and work that, you know, Douglas Shifter loved in spite of the fact that it's really difficult and really ruins your body to be a cab driver. But you also write, you know, how Douglas Shifter was seeing his livelihood destroyed by Uber. And by February 2018, quote, it was clear to him he could not keep up with the algorithms of his oppression and could not eke out a decent living competing against their owners. That month, as an act of protest, Douglas Shifter shot himself in the head in front of City Hall. On Tuesday, taxi drivers held a vigil to remember a livery car driver who'd committed suicide outside the gates of City Hall Monday. Douglas Shifter is believed to be the third New York City driver to commit suicide in the past three months. In a message posted on Facebook, Shifter blames city and state leaders and ride-sharing apps like Uber for pushing him and other taxi drivers into financial despair. Now, one of the things that, to me, is so galling when I listen to these tech titans talk is their contempt for the work that humans do. They're just contempt for the work and knowledge and expertise of someone like Douglas Shifter. Like, forget me, artists are glorified. I mean, I, I will fight for myself because I'm an artist and that's what I do. But, you know, in some ways, we've had a kind of privileged position. I'm also talking about the contempt they have for like farmers, right? And truck drivers, you know, black cab drivers. And I think that this plays in with this very atomized view that a lot of our tech titans have about what they want the future to be. They don't imagine a future of closely knit communities like the North England community that George Meller lived in that you write about, nor like the dirty New York that I grew up in. They imagine a world where everyone is sitting in their little glass box and ordering things on apps and the invisibilized urban poor with no rights comes and delivers that and they don't even have to look at the person. They don't even have to make eye contact. They won't even be pricked by a feeling of exploitation. And it's just that. You don't do anything. You just consume. And what are you going to consume? A bunch of crap that's made by machines. Have you noticed this like deeply anti-human contempt? Is this is this something that you see as well? Absolutely. And again, it, that kind of goes back to that earlier comment I made about the problem with having so much of the services and products and machinery built uh, by and for people who have that vision. And it's such a skewed vision and it leaves so many people out of the equation. And, you know, the other the other night I was in uh, I was in CVS and I was I was just like just just grabbing something and I noticed somebody at that at, at in one of the aisles and they were just they were they had two bags of chips that almost looked identical and they were looking at each and they're just just sweating it out and it, and I and I just had to say it's like are you are you all right and it was somebody working for Instacart who they didn't have the exact brand that the, that the Instacart shopper requested uh and and he was he was trying to, he had texted and they hadn't gotten back to them as whether which one would be acceptable. Um, and I just, I just, that moment really stuck with me because here's, here's somebody who is just really struggling to do their best at the behest of somebody who has adopted this service to where, yeah, just like you said, they press a button on the app, they expect it to come, they expect to get it all right. A lot of times they don't even tip. And this person is, is really toiling, really trying to do the best job possible and having seen what happens on the other end of that equation so many times, just knowing that it's all going completely ignored. The tech titans want to shovel all of that away 
They want it to be invisible. They don't care if people are are stressing, struggling, working even harder than that to make you know the world seem shiny and perfect. And they don't have a lot of care for craft or for uh, the nuances of a community. I mean, art is a good example, but you're but I think just as good example are like the cab drivers who just know every street in a city. And, you know, they can talk to you about what's going on in the city and recommend you places. And, you know, I think we it's it's not just about artists. It's about it's about it's about it's about cab drivers. It's about it's about farmers. It's about every kind of worker that you can imagine. It's as this you know, regime of automation and, and and generative AI starts to impress upon more and more people, this is going to be a series of questions that we have to ask. And like, I think that it's a great thing to have a knowledgeable cab driver who's who's proud and 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 very skilled at what they do. I love that. I love getting in a, in a good cab. And we do, we, we also have to recognize that we can ask that question too of society. Do we want good, smart, funny cab drivers? Or do we want, you know... A robo taxi that's going to be maybe more expensive, but we don't have to. We don't. We don't have to talk to anybody. It's built by Google from the top down, and it's in, and we can you know just kind of just stare at our phone and order stuff on Amazon as we're being transported, you know, without any interaction at all. We have to ask these questions not only about the economics of it, but what kind of world we want, because we are still playing a rearguard action against the world that the tech titans want right now. They're building that world. They're pouring their capital into building that world, the kind that immiserates people so that they can get their stuff at the touch of a button. And if we don't want that, then now is the time to speak up. But Brian, adopt or die, right? Adopt or die. Isn't that what they, they usually say? <laughs> yeah. You don't want to fall talk behind. About, yeah, don't, you don't want to fall behind. Talk about that. Talk about adopt or die. Talk about don't want to fall behind. Yeah, I mean, it is just part and parcel of that sort of, you know, tech titan ideology that we were just talking about. They assume everybody else, you know, want, wants to be that way too, or it's it, it just at least adjacent to that. So, I mean, that's a common thing you hear about the, you know, even back in the Luddites, like, oh, well, why, if they really, if they really cared, why didn't they just like start their own businesses and, you know, compete and make better? And it's like, first of all, like, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. They didn't have access to that kind of capital. But, but second of all, they they had a way of life that they enjoyed, that they had dignity over, that they want, that they thought it was worth fighting to protect. They thought that working at home with their family there so they could sing songs, so they could walk in the garden to take a break if they wanted to. It's not about trying to make more money all the time. It's not about trying to get ahead all the time or try to send more emails or get your your AI to automate this or that. It's about protecting a way of life that's important to you and your community. And that's what the tech titans have missed for 200 years. I want to talk a little bit about the narrative of technological inevitability, which is the narrative that underpins people who say adopt or die. They're saying, you know, because tech exists, it is inevitable. And in Blood and the Machine, you write about these textile entrepreneurs, these these tech barons, who seem to believe it is their responsibility given by God to foist automation on a society regardless of its consequences. And who both believe that the technology is inevitable and also that they must sort of push it. And I'm seeing the same narrative being forced on our throats by companies like OpenAI. And these companies, they might fear monger about this Terminator type future where AI will destroy life on Earth. But they also are pushing this narrative everywhere from Washington, D.C. to Perugia Journalism Festival, where I was at, that says that we inevitably just we have to submit. We have to just, you know, take it. We have to take it. And to me, this is nonsense. We don't have to submit to anything, right? Nothing that humans do is inevitable. There are no God-given laws of history or of anything. We shape our own future. And I want to talk a little bit about what purpose that narrative of inevitability serves. Why is that what they say? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, because... They say that it's it's of a stripe with this mislabeling, mischaracterizing what a Luddite was. Um, adopt or die, it feeds right into that too. Um, and 
embracing this narrative of technological determinism, it's pretty clear who it serves. It makes it a lot easier for the tech companies to push through all their, you know, their, their products and their, their, their work regimes and, and their, their ideas if they can't go challenged because that's taken as an assumption. And it's because it, you know, frankly, to them, it becomes dangerous if people realize exactly what you said, that the development of technology is a series of human decisions. It is not inevitable. It can and has been shaped by human hands at every step along the way. And it has been guided by various forces, competing forces, oftentimes, you know, the forces of, of capital and and market power win out because they have been so powerful historically since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, but they don't always. People are perfectly capable of rejecting a technology or resisting one or even enshrining into law that a technology cannot be pursued or used. You know, we managed to ban ozone back in the day. We have managed to make a series of decisions that we don't always talk as much about, but, you know, especially a lot of, you know, European countries have regulated technology rather effectively. You know, Silicon Valley hates Europe because it actually has at least some teeth in some cases in the way that it 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 it, it, it regulates and restricts what, what technologies can and can't do. And we just we just really need to reintroduce this idea that technology is what what we make it and what we allow it to be. And it, it's hard to do because we've handed so much freedom and so much power and so much money over to a specific industry and a specific subset of people who are making so many of those shots and we have to respond to them. But that doesn't mean that anything is predetermined. It does not mean that we have to accept that Silicon Valley's vision of the future will come to pass. And the more that people realize that, that they can protest elements of this, we can shape technology in a way that serves us and not just a narrow band of interests grows. And I think that we're really seeing something taking shape here that that that, that has the power to do that. I mean, tech, the tech industry is extremely well-heeled. It has a lot of power. It is, it is obscenely rich. It has produced the richest people in history by some counts, but look at them. like. They know that they're not on firm moral, moral ground. Just follow Elon Musk on Twitter for a day or two. He is insecure and neurotic, and he knows that he's not invulnerable because he, he, he has to face the rising worker power at his Tesla plants. Criticism from people uh, about his policies and ideas and his embrace of disgusting anti-Semitism and, uh, and, and, and racist Twitter accounts on the platform he just bought they know that it's out there. And I think the reason that if we're seeing such an aggressive push from OpenAI and these AI companies this year to do those things that you mentioned, like say that, oh, this is an ex it has the power to end humanity. So we need to be careful how we use it. They've, they've had to amp up their rhetoric even to this these obscene levels because in a, in a sense, it's performative. They have to try to shove down people's throats how much power they have because they know that though they're immensely wealthy, though they've wielded a lot of power, that they're also at this moment more vulnerable than ever to people waking up and realizing that technology is not predetermined no matter how they're selling it. You can see their insecurity very clearly when you compare them and their luxury purchases to the last generation of capitalists. Carnegie built libraries and art collections these people build doomsday bunkers <laughs> it's true it's true they our good friend the head of open ai has a doomsday bunker in new zealand i want to end by talking about some ways that we can resist like let's be strategic here i have thought a lot about how to resist generative ai companies specifically in you know my field as an artist and to me there seem to be three ways and i think we should use all of them the first way is through labor organizing what we see with wga with sag aftra and this works really good obviously when you have unions i unfortunately work in an industry where we are a bunch of cats running in different directions we we don't have any union that actually works we have a few trade organizations but no union so there's there's labor action the second thing is there is 
laws, which is what is happening in Europe. Unfortunately, I'm a little bit less sanguine about that in the United States. Uh, The Biden administration released some principles of AI recently that didn't even mention that all of the generators were built on stolen work. So I'm less sanguine on that. The third tactic to me seems like a mixture of boycott and stigmatization, which can certainly work when the thing that AI is producing is public facing, right? Like if you're making an AI generated magazine cover or an AI generated book. People make magazine covers because they want to look cool. And if the effect is that instead you look really dumb and everyone yells at you, you might think twice about it. But those are those are the three sort of broad strategies I see. And the sort of fourth, this isn't a strategy, it's it's a note, is that I think that we need to have solidarity across different types of work. One of the big reasons that the WGA strike has been so effective is that the Teamsters have honored those picket lines. There can't be this division between like creative workers and blue collar workers or white collar workers and blue collar workers. We are all getting screwed by the tech barons on this. So that's my kind of theory broadly about how we might fight this. But I want to hear yours. And I want to hear some specifics. How do you think we fight this? Yeah, those are all good ones. And you know, the Luddites in their time didn't have the luxury of being able to organize. That was against the law to form a union. It was also a democracy-free time, so they couldn't even petition a uh, member of parliament to, to try to get, you know, change. Or And they couldn't throw them out if they said no, right? They couldn't vote them out. So they had very limited options. Today, we have relatively more tools at our disposal, but the odds are still stacked against workers in a lot of ways, especially here in the States, as you say. Um, I, I think yeah, you're right that the, the best bulwark against automation is organizing. And that's the that should be the number one priority for anybody who is worried about this in their workplace um, or is you know, facing a more direct threat. Um, it's, you know, so if, you, if you're if you're fortunate enough to already have a union, then you can as you know, we're seeking to do right now in, in my union. We're trying to get language in our contract right now that just shuts down the use of generative AI for producing any kind of you know content that would be used in a in a news article. Um, so that's our own our own kind of red line there. We can we can do that at least we can debate it uh, and we can fight for it within the contract. If you don't have a union, that's a lot harder to do, and that, especially after you know, decades of waning union power after they've been battered, battered down by corporate interests and hostile uh, leaders. And it, it makes it a lot harder, um, especially when you get to the point of, of, of gig workers, where a lot of times you're not even meeting a lot of your, your colleagues and it's all administrated through an app and you're very atomized and, and it's hard to, to form the bonds of solidarity. That's one thing that made the Luddites so powerful is that they had these really intense bonds of solidarity and they could st- fight together uh, when they approached the, ma- the machine owners. So yeah, I agree with you. It starts with organizing. It starts with the contract and it starts with solidarity. I think we're also in a moment where more and more people are being sort of pushed to the lower, you know, into what would be called quote unquote blue collar, even though, you know, like it's like 80% of SAG isn't making enough money to, to qualify for the health benefit. So a lot of people have been steamrolled by the, the economy over the last 10 years in part, the same reasons that the tech companies have triumphed. So finding solidarity is something that is easier to do. I'm seeing more of it. Um, and it's, and it's great. And I think seizing on this Luddite tactic, I think is another opportunity to build more solidarity because it's an increasingly common tactic of employees to, to employers rather to introduce AI or automation or to threaten it in different workplaces. So if everybody feels that this is, you know, something that can threaten and can come for them, it's, it's, is something that can be good to organize uh, around against. Beyond your solutions, I don't know that I have any other overarching plan that would be that would solve things, but I would say that we do need to continue getting this ethos out into the ether that as people are feeling an anxiety about about technology, just underscoring however we can that it's not 
a question of whether Skynet's going to rise up and destroy you or a sleek Android robot is going to sort of take your place in the office, but whether or not technology is going to be used to sort of to make your life much worse, to replace some of the job you do, to be used as an excuse to pay you less, to deny you that raise, and then making clear that we can use this refusal of a, of a technology, of AI in particular. People do not like AI as in general. There are a handful of people who, you know, kind of think it's cool or optimistic, but by and large, it's something that produces anxiety, rightfully so. And the more that we can get out there, just like the Luddites did, you know, the one thing that they did really well is they drove into culture at the time, pop culture, you could call it. They were like the Robin Hood of their day. People cheered the Luddites in the streets that saying no to this particular technology is an option. It can be productive and it can help achieve serious gains. So the more that we can get that that Luddite ethos in, in, into the into the air, that no is no is an option, and that we can you know all draw our red lines together. Um, I, I think the more successful that will be. You know, I wish I had a more targeted campaign idea than that. I also think that we can look to the ways that they used media technologies of their day and organizing in this distributed way that is actually quite similar to say, you know, Occupy or Black Lives Matter, where you have sort of an overarching um, animating idea or and a figurehead, and then anybody who wants to can plug in and become Ned Ludd. Uh, so there was no one real Ned Ludd, it was uh, whoever wanted to pick up a pen and a paper and send it to a factory owner, uh, tell them that their mach automated machinery is is hurting the community. And if you don't take them down, then we'll take matters into our own hands. So whatever the modern day equivalent of that, it could be worth revisiting as sort of an organizing tool, a decentralized way of opposing AI that uh, people who are who are better at, at that kind of thing uh, can, can think about and play with. Um, but there, but there's a lot there. There's a lot there. And I think the politics of technological refusal can be quite powerful. And I think we, we, we're seeing folks embrace them to great effect. And, and I think it's just the beginning. And there's always Enoch's hammer. And there's always Enoch's hammer if all else fails. That's right. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you, Molly. This is so much fun. You've been listening to Pretty Vacant, a two-part podcast series with Molly Crabapple from the Center for Artistic Inquiry and Reporting. For more information about us, head to artisticinquiry.org. If you like what you've heard, please consider making a tax-free donation on our site. Special thanks to the New York Foundation for the Arts and everyone at HeadGum for their support and studio space.